the very (coughs) first paragraph says, nearly all wisdom we possess, that is to say true and sound wisdom, consists of two parts, the knowledge of God and the knowledge of ourselves. Calvin goes on to make the argument to set up his institutes that really the knowledge of God and the knowledge of self are intertwined. And while certainly we start with the knowledge of God, you must have a knowledge of God to understand self, but really it works backwards as well. There needs to be an understanding of self in order to understand our God. The the goal of knowing yourself is not necessarily a modern goal of being in touch with yourself or maybe taking a, a personality test or finding your spiritual gift or learning what your ancestry is, whatever we may think of. But to know ourselves in the light of God's glory and goodness. To see ourselves made in his image and yet corrupted by the fall. To understand the problem within and the solution without. Calvin concludes that that opening paragraph says, for we always seem to ourselves righteous and upright and wise and holy. This pride is innate in all of us. Unless by clear proofs we stand convinced of our own unrighteousness, foulness, folly, and impurity. Moreover, we are not thus convinced if we look merely to ourselves and not also to the Lord, who is the sole standard by which this judgment must be measured. Our text this morning is a perfect illustration of this truth, of understanding ourselves, understanding the Lord, and needing an understanding of both, having those intertwined. Story of the rich young ruler. Mark just introduces him as a man. A man came. If you take Matthew, you take Luke, you put them all together, and we see he is a rich guy, he is a young guy, he is a ruler, a ruler in the synagogue, most likely, similar to Jairus, if you remember who we saw earlier. So he had it all going on for him. I'm sure he was handsome too. It just fits right in there. Rich, young ruler. And this one comes to Jesus with a question Verse 17, as you just heard read for you, comes, says, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? You, you think of the magnitude of that question, the importance of the question asked. You think of it in comparison to what we've seen in Mark to this point. Most everyone who's coming and asking Jesus a question, it's that they want some physical healing. They, they want something like that of some sort. What can you do for me? I need physical healing. Someone I love needs physical healing. Or it's the Pharisees who come and their questions are dishonest. They're simply looking to trick or entrap Jesus. But here this man comes with a sincere question of great magnitude. And yet in his sincerity, even in the asking of the question, you might see that there's something slightly amiss in his pursuit. How does he ask it? What must I do to inherit eternal life? What can I accomplish? What rule can I keep? What can I bring before you? What can I set before you to accomplish this? What can I do? 
It's similar to the question, if you remember in the other Gospels, of the, the parable of the Good Samaritan. As the scribes and Pharisees come to Jesus, the, the question asked that begins that parable is, what must I do to be justified? And Jesus, in that parable, and like we will see today in this encounter, will unwind it a little bit and show us, indeed, there is nothing you can do to inherit eternal life. As he comes to him, though, he addresses him as good teacher. The the man is more correct than he realizes when he addresses him as, as good teacher. It wouldn't be an ordinary greeting, but maybe the rabbis of of the the highest regard, the greatest reputation, someone would approach them and address them as as good teacher, perhaps. But it's a high bar that that is being set here in approaching him and saying good teacher. This young ruler recognizes Jesus' wisdom, Jesus' authority, that he is a, a good, a great teacher, And yet in Jesus' response, we see that the man still has a shallow understanding of goodness. A shallow idea of goodness. For typically as we think of goodness, as as we evaluate it, we put it on a scale and compare ourselves to the person next to us. Or compare ourselves to somebody who we know we're better than or think we're better than. And we sort of put goodness on this scale. And and the man seems to have this sort of mindset of goodness. And we we take this, we understand this by the way that Jesus responds to him. Jesus says, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. In that, Jesus is revealing his identity as the son of God. And he's also laying the foundation for this conversation on what it's going to take to inherit eternal life. And it's going to take a lot more than this man's understanding of goodness. What is being laid for us is a foundation for theology of depravity as we understand it. People often get hung up on this idea that no one is good because we think that there is civic goodness out there. People do nice things for one another. There are virtuous causes that people are involved in or, or they donate towards. There are people who are passionate about mercy and justice and things that have a civic goodness. And again, on that idea of good, yes, but when we talk about essential goodness, goodness that would reflect the beauty, the character of our God, there is nothing that is essentially good outside of God himself. Paul, the epistles, will will build on this theology, build for us the idea of depravity, of the radical and total corruption of man. Again, not that all of us are the worst possible that we could be, but all of us made in God's image, that image is radically corrupted. There's radical moral corruption in each of us. And all you have to do is step back and just think about your life in the last week and realize essential goodness does not belong to you. And even in your best moments, there's many mixed motives. So Jesus moves on. He says, you know the commandments. Again, answering the question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? You know the commandments. 
And then he lists the second table of the Ten Commandments, the the second half of the Ten Commandments. The first dealing with our relationship with God, the second our relationship with one another. And he lays those out, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and your mother. And surprisingly, this rich young man, as he hears that, takes a sigh of relief. (laughs) Oh, great. Teacher, all these I have done since my youth. I'm good to go on these. Now, maybe, perhaps externally, he had kept these commandments. By the letter of the law and the external obedience, he had kept them. We've talked about this through Mark, that the Pharisees, the scribes, what they have done is they've taken the law of God and they have built around it all kinds of traditions of men. And these traditions are things they can measure. Did they do it? Did they not? And and they build these traditions because, in a sense, if they can keep the traditions, then they can say, yes, I fulfilled the law. They make the law doable. They make it a matter of works that they're able to accomplish. And so he doesn't seem to be, the rich young ruler here, doesn't seem to be uh, overly arrogant or just, you know, kind of flaunting his way through. He seems to be honest and sincere in what he is saying. And again, maybe we can think of an example from Scripture of the Apostle Paul himself that could help us. In Philippians 3, Paul is making an argument to the Jewish leaders. And in doing so, he kind of builds for himself, he works through his own resume. Here's my credentials when it comes to Judaism. And he's going through a whole bunch of things. And he says, when it comes to the law, I was blameless. Paul in describing himself pre-conversion, would say, when it comes to the law, I was blameless. That's perhaps what this man is thinking here. But if you look a little later, you come to Timothy, and Paul would write to Timothy, and in 1 Timothy, he would describe himself how? As the chief of all sinners. But what took place from being, oh, I'm under the law, I'm blameless, to, no, I'm the chief of all sinners, What changed there? He had an encounter with Jesus Christ. He saw Christ. He heard Christ's words. He came to know Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And in knowing Jesus Christ, He came to know Himself. That the knowledge of self, the knowledge of our Lord, are tied together in that way. And so the man answers, seems like with a sigh of relief, Lord, I've done all that you've told me to. And Jesus' response <clears throat> is interesting. I, I, it's, it's not what you would expect. At least it's not what I would expect. I would expect Jesus, when the man responds that way, to be like, oh, have you really? Did, maybe you missed my sermon on the mount. You remember that sermon? Where I talked about, like, if you've ever, like, harbored anger at someone, you're guilty of murder. If you've had a, a lustful thought, you're, you're guilty of adultery. Remember I talked about how God's, or man sees the outside, God sees the heart. That, that's from within, that's what corrupts, is the evil that comes out from within. Really put the guy in his place. 
But you see, Jesus is, is moved with a heart of compassion for this man. It says in verse 21, Jesus looked at him. He studied him for a minute. And he loved him. There's no like special Greek word that actually love here means. No, he loved him. It's a strong word for love. The Lord's moved with compassion for this man. That's what makes you suggest he's sincere as he comes. As, as a rich young ruler falls on his knees before the Lord and asks this question. And yet even in his sincerity, he's in error. So Jesus says in verse 21, you lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Really, in saying follow me, he is saying what you need for eternal life is me. The solution to your problem, the answer to your question is right in front of you. It is me, follow me. Jesus answers this way not because this now becomes a universal rule that all people who want to be disciples of Christ have to sell everything they have and give it to the poor. But because he knows this man, it's a unique individual, and with compassion he answers this one, and he understands this person has a treasure. This person has an idol that he has placed before Jesus Christ. That his identity, his hope, his security, his allegiance belongs to something else before Christ. And so he asks the question in sincerity, and Jesus' answer is revealing. And the man's response is even more revealing. Verse 22, disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Literally, the word devastated by Jesus' answer, he went away. We need to all hear this word and take care. R really, two applications before we continue moving on. One, it, <clears throat> that our understanding of goodness comes from an understanding of Jesus Christ, an understanding of our Lord and all of his beauty and all of his glory and all of his majesty. And it doesn't come in a simple comparison between you and me. It doesn't become in my accomplishments of the day. It's easy to take a, a more secular view of, of goodness and to judge yourself extremely charitably. That's why it's so important we're we come and on a regular basis are exposed to the word, exposed to these songs that, that are beautiful and, and praying before our God. Because as we come to know the Lord, we begin to know ourselves better. And we understand just our desperate need of him, that we could not stand on our own goodness. Secondly, that we don't confess Jesus Christ with our tongues, but order our lives around everything else. I think this is a real temptation for us because 
I'm guessing all of you would say Jesus Christ is your number one priority. But do we order our lives around him? Are there sacrifices we're willing to make for him? Would we take a job or not take a job based on Christ? Is our relationship to sports, is it with Christ as a priority or with Christ as he understands and wants me to enjoy this hobby? Our hobbies in general, do those take a priority before the Lord? I might step on some toes with this one, but before you, and if you have a cabin somewhere, fine, good. Before you get the cabin that you're going to spend all your weekends with, are you thinking, what would Jesus have me do? Is, is he king of my life? Is he my treasure? Or are there other things that pop up that by the decisions I make and the way I spend my time, in essence, I'm saying this is actually my priority. This man comes with a heart that is genuine, with an answer, he wants an answer to this question. He wants to, obviously he's committed to the Lord. But there's wealth, it's possessions, that's the thing for him. And he walks away disheartened because that's the idol of his heart that he's placed before Christ. <clears throat> before we just dismiss it too quickly, let's examine our own hearts and our own lives and hearing God's call of discipleship. We would die to self, follow him. As often happens, a scenario takes place, and what does Jesus do? He then turns to his disciples and begins to teach them. Verse 23, Jesus looked around, said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples are amazed. They're not immune to sort of the thought of the day that someone's prosperity often is equal to God's favor in their lives. And this guy had it all. He's young, he's rich, he's got a prestigious job. Obviously, God's very pleased with him. So they are amazed at the words, as, as Jesus would say, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. But Jesus said to them again, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. All right, a couple things. He, he's not saying that if you're rich, you certainly are not going to heaven. But he's making two points. The first, we'll see as he, we move further in the text that humanly speaking of your own efforts, it's impossible for any of you to enter the kingdom of God. It takes the work of Christ. But especially to the wealthy, he sets it up in juxtaposition with the text we just went through earlier. That we, if we are to receive the kingdom of God, we need to do it just like the little children did. And how did the little children receive the kingdom of God? 
Not with like great faith and naivety. That's not what he's speaking of. They receive the kingdom of God with completely empty hands. That They bring nothing. They're offering nothing. They come with empty hands and Christ fills their need. They come poor in spirit. They come, it's the poor in spirit, the humility, the helplessness. That is how they come and enter the kingdom of God. And he tells us earlier in Mark 10, if you're going to enter the kingdom of God, you have to do it like the children do it. Which then informs us, why is it difficult for the wealthy to enter the kingdom of God? Because when you have great possessions, when you have great wealth, it's hard not to find your identity, to find your hope, your confidence in those things. That's just the reality of it. That riches themselves are not sinful. Ha- having wealth isn't. But placing our trust, making them an idol, is, diffi- is sinful. And it is difficult to overcome that. To not put your hope in those possessions. So poverty is never lifted up as something in and of itself that is a a noble thing to be poor or that it's a good thing or that it's without its struggles but it's one advantage scripture tells us it's one advantage is that it is easier to see your need now when we read this in one way I think we all really need to put ourselves in the place of the wealthy when you think globally compared to many nations and people, the amount of wealth that we have. That, yeah, maybe you can't go just buy any car you want and, you know, you got to be careful with how you spend your money a little bit. But most of us aren't, you know, deeply troubled about where our next meal is coming from. And so in one way, we all kind of fall into that wealthy category of just being able to meet our own needs and and feeling like we bring a lot to the table. And the easier it is to meet your own needs, the more difficult it is to see that we have to look outside of ourselves because we have nothing to bring when it comes to inheriting eternal life. A few more just biblical comments on it. We do know... There are wealthy people who Jesus speaks highly of. Abraham was a wealthy person. He's in the hall of faith, Hebrews 11. You think of Job, kind of like an incredibly wealthy like a person who, would, who had outrageous wealth, and you see his faith and his hope and his testimony in the Lord. Joseph of Arimathea, Lydia, a couple New Testament people, Philemon, who are valuable in the work of the kingdom of money. But there are warnings. If you remember in Revelation, as Jesus writes to the church, he writes to the church at Laodicea. Do you remember the church at Laodicea, what his critique of them is? They're lukewarm. He said, I'd rather you were hot or cold, but you're lukewarm. I want to spit you out of my mouth. Verse 16 of Revelation 3 says, So because you are lukewarm, neither, neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I would counsel you this, buy from me 
gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen. They've become lukewarm. They're relying on, look, we've got it together. Things are going well. We don't have a problem, see? But we're prospering. He says, no, you're wretched, pitiable, poor, and blind. You need to see that, for to such belong the kingdom of God, the Beatitudes, the poor in spirit. I think the, a good attitude to have towards wealth, proverbial wisdom, that we hear it. And I know our impulse is to think we're special. We can handle tons and tons of money. And even as I say it in my own heart, I think, if I had tons of money, I'd be good. <laughs> Proverbs 30, 7-9, Two things I ask of you, deny them not from me, remove far from me falsehood and lying. And secondly, give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with food that is needful for me. Why does he want neither poverty nor riches? Lest I be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord? If I have everything I need, I forget about you. I don't need you anymore. Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God, the temptation that lies on the other hand. We would be wise with our wealth. It would be used for kingdom purposes, but that we would look and see, are we relying on it? Does the fact that, you know, everything seems pretty comfortable for us does that mask the need of our soul? The pitiable state that we are in. All right, moving on. Verse 26, the disciples, man, they're exceedingly astonished. They said to him, who then can be saved? And Jesus looked at them, with man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. What, what a great statement. Humanly speaking, for each of us, it's impossible for us to enter the kingdom of God apart from God. There is nothing we can bring. There is no amount of law that we can keep. There is no wealth or accumulation. There is no possessions that we can come. We enter the kingdom only like that little child, helpless and with nothing in our hands. If you're relying and trusting in anything else, you are relying and trusting in the wrong thing. But with God, all things are possible. I mean, how many Christian athletes have this on their shirt, right? With God, all things are possible. And they turn it into this saying, like, I can make a whole bunch of three-pointers. With God, it's possible. I think they're missing the context here. <laughs> We're talking about entering the kingdom of God. But with God is possible that he can overcome our wealth. He can overcome our blindness. He can meet that need that we might enter the kingdom of God with all things as possible. I think this statement produces both some humility that we recognize our complete dependence on the Lord. That we don't measure ourselves compared to someone else, but see, we're all in the same place, completely dependent upon the Lord. I think it also gives us a measure of confidence for that friend, that family member who you've been praying for forever. And it's just like, there's no way that person will get saved. There's just too much 
stacked against them. Their life is set up in such a way, no, no way. God is stronger than our hearts. He is stronger than their hearts. He is stronger than their blindness. With God, all things are possible. Verse 28, Peter began to, him, began to say to him, so you get that he just starts his response. See, we, we've left everything and followed you. We don't have this problem. We don't have the wealth. We don't have the riches. What you told that, that guy to do, we did it. Jesus says to him in verse 29, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive, this is the reward, will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands. Then he adds, with persecutions and in the age to come, eternal life. That giving all that you have, leaving all behind and following the Lord now, in this time right now, he will reward you a hundredfold. The idea of you close, a door is closed to you, but a hundred new doors are open to you. You lose a relationship with someone you cared about, and you enter into a relationship with all kinds of people who, who you share a deep unity in the faith with, brothers and sisters. What you give up, the Lord will fulfill and reward you. It's not a promise of prosperity. It's not a promise that you will no longer have any difficulty because he says with all that, part of your reward is persecution as well. He's giving you confidence that persecution doesn't mean the Lord has abandoned you. In fact, it would say, this is part of your reward for following him. The real reward comes, the age to come, with eternal life. What we give up now is not even worth comparing to the riches that we will receive in the heavenly kingdom. So he's saying that this guy has got his math wrong. This rich young ruler has done his math wrong. He's unwilling to give it up. I'm telling you, what you give up, you'll be rewarded for a hundredfold in this age as God's grace and God's mercy and the community of faith and his church pours in to your life. And the outcome, what that man was looking for, in the age to come, you'll be rewarded with eternal life. One final comment in verse 31. Jesus says, But many who are first will be last, and the last will be first. In the end, there will be surprises in the kingdom of God. The kingdom seems to flip everything upside down on its head. Those who are first now, the rich, the powerful, the beautiful, will be last well, the lowly in this life, the humble, the humble will be first. It is hard for us, no matter how, how great our anticipation is of heaven and the heavenly kingdom, and we know it will be amazing, 
to not invest everything on building our kingdom and our wealth and our prestige here and now. It just is. You know, it's... If I had a choice of being someone who, you know, you're going to be a pastor that everyone knows about, great prestige, and people will look up to you, you have a bunch of success. Or you could be a guy who faithfully pastors in some tiny rural area to 15 people your whole life. I mean, I'd, my impulse would be no questions asked. I, I'll take the big deal guy. I'm not even wondering about what it looks like in the kingdom. I, I just, we want to be, we want right now to build our kingdom. We want right now to advance. We're unwilling to give up something right now because it's, it stands in our, to do so it would maybe hurt our cause of happiness or joy or advancement or security. And we invest, we invest, we invest in everything right now in temporal. And he's saying that those people will be last in the kingdom of God. Those who in great humility, with, with nothing. Again, not meaning you have no wealth, no possessions. I'm talking coming as a little child with empty hands, poor in spirit, pointing others to Christ. Those will be first in the kingdom. Those who in humility become servant of all. Those who, who are last Remember earlier when the disciples are arguing, who will be greatest in the kingdom? And he tells them, I'll tell you who will be greatest. Here's the one who will be great. The one who is last. And by that, he means the one who considers others before himself. The one who places the needs of others before himself. The one who places Christ before his own desires. The one who studies, considers others. The one who is last, he will be greatest. And the one who becomes a servant of all. He will be greatest. No respecter of persons. Jesus himself being that example. When everyone else fled from the leper, Jesus was his servant and healed him. When everyone else was trying to get the, the lady with the hemorrhaging blood away from Jesus, he sees her and he listens to her story and he heals her. He was last. He was the servant of all. That is kingdom greatness. That is what is first in the kingdom. God resists the proud. He gives grace to the humble. So as we leave this text, and we see how discipleship reorders our things in this life, as we are on the way, on the way to Jerusalem, on our journey of discipleship, it reorders how we think about marriage. It reorders how we think about children. It should reorder how we think about possessions as well you can do great things with wealth you can enjoy a lot of blessings you can be a blessing to others in it and yet wealth can often stand in the way of us entering the kingdom because we rest on that and not on Jesus Christ oh and by the way it's humanly impossible for any of us to enter the kingdom we all must look to the Lord we all must rest fully and receive him fully. Then finally, remember, our knowledge of ourselves comes as we have a good understanding in our knowledge of God. Continue to give ourselves to the word.
continue to give ourselves of worship that we might know our God, we might know ourselves. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you.